Sometimes you wonder if you should clap or not. Go ahead. All right. Well, Luke chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there where we're going to look this morning at the growth of the kingdom. I think most would agree that election times are kind of unsettling. Uh, Sometimes it's even a little fearful. Uh, you, You understand the biblical foundations of our country and... You know, how our law system is based on the Bible, our constitution is based on the Bible. You go to Washington, there's Bible verses all over the place, but our country's not doing as well as it used to. And uh, we seem to be decaying as far as Christianity and biblical principles and morals. And it seems sometimes like evil is just this unstoppable force. And what do we do about it? You know, we want a president that will uphold biblical principles and fix our country both morally and economically. But we all know, and if we don't, we need to get a clue. Nobody is going to be able to fix it except the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. And we remind ourselves that God is one who establishes authority, that there is no authority except that which is established by God and that every ruler is put there by God. And that is encouraging, but it can also be a little depressing because we might get a president we deserve. (laughs) And those thoughts can depress us considerably. And so when it comes down to it, we just can't place our hope in our president, our government, our country, but in Christ In Christ alone. And if we place our hope in this evil world and its governments, we are of all men most to be pitied. But even if we know these things, and even if we know that we are to place our hope in Christ, it's still depressing to have something good and then to lose it by degrees. To look back at your childhood and say, man, it was way better then than it is now. And we just see this progression towards evil and we like our houses. We like our cars. We like our stuff. And though we aren't hoping in those, I mean, you know, we don't have to like, like misery to be a Christian. And we hope that God would allow us to maintain those things. But again, as we see our world fall apart, it can just make us fearful and anxious and depressed and discouraged because things are just proceeding from bad to worse. Well, this morning we come to a rather fun passage, two parables, one liners, that teach us some very important things about our future, our hope for the future, and the kingdom of God in specific. We've learned that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. Luke gives us several little episodes that he is encountering, healings, teachings, confrontations, and he ends up going to a synagogue and teaching there. And from all we know, this is the last time he was ever invited to do that because the opposition from the Jewish leaders was growing. So he gets to go to a synagogue and, and teach. And as he is teaching there in the middle of his sermon, he sees in the back a woman who is bent over double. And Luke tells us that this woman was this way for 18 years. And so everybody knew this woman in this town. She was the bent over woman. And I mean, really bent over is how the Greek describes it. And Jesus sees that woman 
and he stops his sermon, goes against all normal synagogue etiquette and says, come on up here. And with the eyes of the entire crowd watching Jesus, he heals her in front of everybody. And when he does this, he fulfills messianic prophecy. He displays himself to be the Messiah by wielding the power of God. For instance, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. They see Jesus fulfill this messianic prophecy right before them in the synagogue service. Now, the Jews, because they were so oppressed for so long by Gentile nations, they knew all the messianic texts. And so these texts would immediately leap to their mind and they'd think, oh, could this be the Messiah? And so this is what's happening in the text before us. Jesus has just healed the woman. Verse 17, the verse right before our text says, and the, all the crowd was rejoicing and praising God. They were just, wow. And then comes our text. So follow along with me as I read verses 18 through 21 of Luke chapter 13. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of flour until it was all leaven. Now, from these two little simple parables, Jesus teaches us just some basic but important concepts about the kingdom of God that will give us hope, give us encouragement, and make us not despair because the future is going to be really good. Now, such a forthright display of divine power was obviously something that didn't happen in the synagogue just like it wouldn't happen here on Sunday morning. It wasn't a normal occurrence. It was very shocking. It was, in some respects, scary, but it was also very revealing. And they're probably wondering, should I side with this guy? Should I believe with this this Jesus guy? Should I follow him? Is he going to overthrow Rome? Is he going to set up the kingdom that we've been hoping would be set up? And yet, You look at Jesus, and he's not wearing a robe. He doesn't have a crown. As a matter of fact, his clothing is rather ragged and poor. You look at his followers. Hmm. They're not an army. They're a bunch of social misfits. Fishermen, political zealots, repented tax collectors. And you're wondering... Hmm, is this the guy? I mean, with the, the miracle was great, but I don't know if I can commit to a guy like that because look at him. Look at his followers. His movement is pretty wimpy. You see, the Jews 
were longing to see the Messiah come back in glory. They didn't understand the first coming and the second coming. And so they just glommed them all together. And in their minds, these scriptures are coming to them like, you know, he will go forth to fight as when he fights in the day of battle and he will conquer the nations and he will establish a kingdom in righteousness. And then there's Jesus. Hmm. And even after Jesus died, and even after he rose again, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, do you remember what the disciples said? They said, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought, okay, okay, we didn't get the purpose of the first coming. We know now you had to die, and thankfully you rose from the dead. Oh, that's good. So you're going to beat up Rome now? See, that was the concept. That was the mindset of your average Jewish person who was longing to see the Messiah set up a kingdom where righteousness dwelt. And so the Jews are eager to see that happen. And so what we have here is we have a bunch of people in the synagogue. And we know there wasn't a mass conversion. They didn't all repent then and give their life to Christ. Maybe a few did. They're marveling at Jesus' ability to do miracles They understand that he could be the Messiah, but they're fearful of siding with him. It would be like this. It'd be like you, you know, joining the communist Nazi party and having T-shirts and stickers on your car and being very open about how you hate America. You hate our Constitution. You hate what this country stands for. You're a Nazi. Now, that would be difficult. Living in this society with that kind of open mindset about this this philosophy and this, this ideology that is contrary to what this country stands for. And you would be ostracized, wouldn't you? I mean, a lot of people know if that was you, Ben, I'm not giving you any of my business. I'm not letting you come into my store. I don't even want to talk to you. I mean, you would be ostracized. Well, this is what's happening. Jesus has made himself an enemy of the religious leaders. They hate him. And he has offended great multitudes of people. So now to side with Jesus is to take a kind of do or die stance. I mean, it's a no turn back situation. And what if Jesus's movement just kind of fell apart? Then where will you be? You've gone against the religious leaders. You've gone against the bulk of humanity that rejects him as false. And now you have showed that you have very little discernment because you've sided with a wacko whose movement came to nothing. There, what would you be? I mean, you would have committed social and religious suicide. And so that's what's going on in the minds of these people. And that's why, and we see this all the way through the gospel, there's this hesitation Because of the fear and consequence and the sacrifice that it would take to side with Christ and follow him as the Messiah. All this and the fact that Jesus doesn't seem all that powerful, all that military, doesn't have an army, doesn't have resources, doesn't have riches, doesn't look like any other conqueror they have ever seen because they don't understand the purpose of the first and second comings. So that's what's going on in the minds of the people. And that's what you need to be thinking about as we go into these parables. Matthew Henry writes, many perhaps were prejudiced against the gospel and loath to come into that obedience to it because its beginning was so small. 
They were ready to say of Christ, can this man save us? And of his gospel, is it likely ever to come to anything? Now, Christ would remove this prejudice by assuring them that though its beginning was small, its latter end should greatly increase, end quote. So we come to these two little parables, and I just need to say some things. You know, sometimes I think maybe I'm just not going to say anything, but I've got to do this because parables are just, they're magnets for bad interpretation. They just, you know, what happens is, is everybody knows that parables have a spiritual underlying truth. So they come to the parable, and the first thing they do is they start imagining what parallels they could think of in this parable. That is a bad way to approach things. And then they pretty soon their imagination becomes the engine that generates a whole bunch of interpretations. I couldn't even go through all of them this morning. I had to cut out about a half hour of them just refuting bad ideas about all kinds of wacko things. But let me just give you just a summary of what we need to remember when we approach a parable. One, a parable is a true to life story. It's something that could really happen. It's not an allegory. An allegory is something that could not happen, is not true to life. A beast with ten heads and seven seven horns, a, a tree that grows up and all the nations nest in its branches. Allegory, okay? An allegory is is a string of extended metaphors. One metaphor after another metaphor. A metaphor is a non-expressed comparison like, I am the bread, I am the door, okay? I am the shepherd. Those are just metaphors now when as soon as you put like there i am like bread or i am like a door then you have a simile so an allegory is a bunch of metaphors all strung together and each part of the allegory has a secondary meaning not so with parables parables don't always have a spiritual secondary meaning to every little bit keep that in mind parables are also given to meet a specific situation in the near preceding context. So in other words, when Jesus gives a parable, there's something in the context and he gives the parable to address that situation or need. That's not always so with allegories, usually not. Third, in the main, the main lesson taught in the parable, which in a bigger parable is always at the end, but we have one liners here. So they're at the end and the beginning. Um, the main point always addresses the situation or need. So whatever the situation or need is for giving the parable, whatever the interpretation of the parable is, it has to meet the situation or the need. Four, you must refrain from over-spiritualizing parables, over-interpreting them, taking every detail and saying, well, this has to represent this. And what does this mean? You know, does the fattened calf represent this? And does this mean that? Does the oil represent the Holy Spirit? You know, um, not all the details have to have a spiritual meaning. And we need to understand that parables are most easily interpreted when we understand the cultural customs and lifestyle of the people that are hearing the parable, not our own. And finally, you must be careful not to use inappropriate cross-references. Cross-references are fine, but they should never take as much weight as the near context. Context is king. And so we always look at the context first, and then once we understand what the passage means within its context, then we can use other cross-references to support it. But we don't run to the cross-references, so the contra cross-references then drive the interpretation. That's backwards. 
All right, there's your little hermeneutics class, Bible study principles 101. And now let's look at the parables. First, the growth of the kingdom. Look at verse 18. Jesus wants them to understand something about the kingdom. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Keep in mind that the mindset is, wow, this guy just did a miracle. And they're all rejoicing. They're praising God. But not very many of them are following him. Why? Because they're fearful. They're fearful because Jesus is is pretty insignificant looking along with his followers and his whole movement seems to be a, a rag bag of motley people. Look at verse 19. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And we just need to ask ourselves, OK, what, what, what are we talking about here as far as mustard seed? I don't know if you've ever done any canning or pickling. I don't know if mustard seed is all that popular spice. If you make pickles and stuff, it's it, use it in there. But um and when you go to the store and you look at mustard seed, it's it's a little, little round yellow seed. That's nothing like what's being talked about here. That's hybridized, large, extra large mustard seed. Um, what we're talking about here is little tiny black um, seed, which as far as the seeds that they used, you know, wheat and melons and leeks and beets and onions and, you know, things like that. The normal seeds that you'd put tomatoes, whatever they put in their garden, this seed was the smallest of them all. Uh, this, you know, most seeds you'd plant in your garden, they're pretty big seeds, but th- this is a little seed. This is a tiny thing. So Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom of God is like this tiny little mustard seed. Look at the middle of verse 19, which a man took and threw into his own garden and it grew and became a tree. Now, it's common if you just have wild mustard growing out and, and you can see it if you go to Israel that, you know, you'll, they'll get six, eight feet tall. No problem. Just a standard mustard plant. But if you put it in your garden in some good soil with some water and fertilizer, you can get it up 12, 15 feet tall. And it's, you know, not really literally a tree, you know, like a main trunk with the big branches, you know, not, not that type of thing. It's kind of a scraggly looking lanky bush thing. But towards the end of the year, the branches get harder and birds can nest and sometimes do in the branches of those trees. Now look at the end of verse 19. Jesus says, And the birds of the air nested in its branches. In other words, that tiny mustard seed, which among those things sown in the garden is the smallest of seeds, becomes the largest of plants. So large, in fact, that birds are able to nest in the branches. And this is where the road of wacky interpretations begin. So I'm eager to quickly get to the spiritual meaning of the text. Say that the birds here represent vultures, unclean birds who nest in the branches of the mustard seed, mustard plant, which represents the church. And you know what? You know, with all these interpretations, there's kind of this little bit of truth, and you can see why they take these interpretations. It is true that vultures are unclean birds. It is true that birds are sometimes used as symbols of evil. It's true that the church on earth will always be plagued by evil. However, vultures never nest in mustard plants. I mean, even the biggest, strongest mustard plant would not hold up a vulture. Vultures nest on the ground. They nest in rocky cliffs. And sometimes they nest in very large trees, but never mustard plants. So that just doesn't work. But let's just say, well, let's talk about, you know, evil sparrows or something. Um, You know, evil little birds. Uh, 
Okay, um, there is no doubt. But then you need to ask yourself, would anyone listening, would anyone listening to Jesus think to themselves, wow, this mustard plant is the church and these birds are evil? No. See, the church wasn't even started yet. They couldn't have thought that. And remember, the interpretation of a passage is what the original audience understood the parable to mean at that time. Others have referred to the visions and allegories in Ezekiel 31.6 and Daniel 4.21, where nations are compared to birds who settle into trees. You remember Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed at this big tree and all the nations that settle, you know, come to him and, you know, live in his branches. Well, that's true of Ezekiel and true of Daniel in those contexts. But we aren't in that context. We're in a whole different context. So you can't say, well, because he was used in that context, you know, 900 years ago or whatever. Therefore, it means that now that just doesn't work. Some have pointed to the parable of the soils and they say, don't you remember the seed that was sown among the road and the birds came and snatched it up? And Jesus later on, when he interpreted the parable of the soil, said that the seed was the word of God. And then Satan came and snatched away. This, the word of God, so it became unfruitful. Don't you remember that? I remember that. And that is true of Matthew 13. But then all of a sudden now, the mustard seed becomes the word of God that is growing. And what? Satan, the evil bird, is nesting in the word of God? That doesn't work good either. It's not the same time. It's not the same place. It's not the same context. And it's not the same situation that Jesus is giving the parable. So if the mustard seed, mustard plant represents the church, then the church couldn't have under, then the, the, the audience couldn't have understood the meaning because the church didn't even exist then. And so these kind of interpretations just don't work. They preach well. You know, it's really fun, you know, to spiritualize a little bit and make up some things. And if you don't know anything, you just say it with more force. And then, you know. So you tell the seminary students, when you get to a place, you don't know what you're talking about. Just say it confidently. Uh, It's not a very good preaching technique. The point Jesus is making is that the tiny mustard seeds, the tiniest of those in the garden, grow to be the biggest plants. So big, in fact, that birds can nest in them. Though they start small, they get the biggest. Okay, that's... That I think is all he's saying here. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, There's no evil vultures or anything. I mean, that does sound fun. I think Jesus is just saying, listen, um, you look at me. You look at my ragged followers here. You look at my movement. You don't see my army. You don't see my kingdom. But I want you to know I'm starting small, but I'm going to become the biggest. My kingdom will be huge. And this is encouraging, isn't it? Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not going to set up his kingdom in the midst of the evil world system that Satan is now ruling. No, he's going to create an entirely new system where he's ruling. So no matter how bad things get, no matter how terrible they are in the world, no matter what president we get or series of presidents or if our country falls apart or, you know, whatever it is, we can have hope. Because if we side with Jesus's movement, 
it's taken over. Eventually, it's taken over. And that's where we can have our hope. Secondly, the takeover of God's kingdom. Look at verses 20 and 21. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven. And again, let's just stop and talk about leaven. You know, it used to be that, you know, people made bread a lot. Now we go to the grocery store and pull a loaf off the shelf. And if you do bake bread, you just throw all the ingredients in this machine. And then it kind of makes this weird loaf that looks like a mushroom or something. Um, you know, it's got automatic bread maker, which kind of takes the whole purpose out of making your own bread. I mean, you got to knead it yourself. Otherwise, it just, you know, isn't quite as, you know, homey. Um <laughs> Anyways, we all, we call leaven yeast. That's what he's talking about. Yeast. Yeast is microscopic organism. Actually, and I hope this doesn't discourage you. It's a member of the fungi family. So, uh, you know, you get a little fungus in your bread. Makes it taste good sometimes. A sourdough fungus is especially good to me. Um, and the, the growth of this fungi in the in the dough and the gluten and the sugar and the eggs or whatever you have in there, then expels carbon dioxide and makes all those fun little pockets in the bread. And that's what gives bread its squishiness, its texture. And, uh, you know, depending on the recipes and stuff and how long you rise, make it rise and things like that, you, you, you get leaven in your bread and it causes it to be that way. And everybody knows if you do make things out of yeast that if you ever like do things. So here's some things I've done. I've put hot water instead of warm water and killed the yeast before I did the dough. And then I remember making pizza one time and it kind of turned out like plywood. <laughs> That's not good. Um, that we want some leaven in there for rising purposes. And so, um, that's what leaven's for. They all used it. It was common in Israel. Everybody used it. They still use it. I mean, you go buy bread, it all, it's pretty much all leavened, and that's how it is. So look in the middle of verse 21, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. And three pecks of flour is a lot of flour. You know, have you ever seen on the bottom shelf in the grocery store those huge sacks of flour, 50-pounders? Or maybe, you know, you've been you know, it's Costco or something. You see one of those big bags of flour and... uh it's like mixing that it's we're talking a huge batch of dough here jesus uses three packs to just emphasize we got a big batch of flour here a large batch of dough and a little tiny bit of leaven mixed in with that dough soon will permeate the whole and everybody knew that everybody knew that's how you how yeast or leaven worked and so what does this parable mean? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean first. Many interpreters are quick to use cross-references instead of looking at the context, the situation, and the interpretation of the parable that meets the situation. They are quick to say, well, we know that leaven represents an evil influence. I mean, after all, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 16 verse 6 this Jesus said to them, watch out and beware for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then after a while, the, 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 the disciples obviously are clueless. They didn't catch the symbolism here. And in verses 11 and 12, Jesus kind of rebukes them and says, How is it that you do not understand that it did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I think still at this point, they're thinking, Did they sell leaven? <laughs> you know, it's encouraging. Um, then they understood that he did not say 
to beware of the leaven of bread, because leaven of bread is good, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, okay. No doubt. If you look back, just look back at Luke chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see at the bottom of verse 1 of Luke chapter 12, this phrase, where Jesus sees his disciples. They're, they're kind of scared. He's just confronted the, the Pharisees in the preceding context, and the disciples are scared because he did that. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it is indisputable that sometimes leaven is used as a figure of speech to talk about evil influence, evil teaching. No doubt. We even see this as far back as the Passover, don't we? Remember when they were leaving the land, they were have to leave in haste. They were not to leaven their bread. And later on in the Passover feast and in the feast of unleavened bread, they were to not put any leaven in their bread to symbolize purity. They were to depart from Egypt and yet not take any of the leaven, the false teaching, the paganism, the idolatry that was all in Egypt. They were to leave that behind and come out and be, figuratively speaking, a new lump of dough. And that is exactly what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember when the man was living in in and immorality was sleeping with his stepmother and the church was kind of boasting like, you know, we're pretty bad. You know, I mean, look at uh, look how loving we are. We haven't confronted the guy. We're just letting him continue on in this lifestyle because we know that we're all sinners and we all need to tolerate sin and we need to be accepting. Even if, you know, this is not something we would do. You know, we need to be Christians and Christians love people and they're not judging. Well, Paul, of course, in the whole chapter takes him to task. But this is what he says in verses six to eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he just tells him right there, makes the parallel, connects it with the Passover. Jesus is paralleled with the Passover lamb and the new lump of dough leaving Egypt, not having leaven. I mean, you don't continue in those sins that you enjoyed before coming to Christ, those things. And it's undeniable. Leaven is used as an evil influence. The question is, is that what it means in our text? Well, some are very insistent about this, very insistent. In fact, some say leaven always represents evil or an evil influence. For instance, J. Vernon McGee says in his commentary, quote, leaven represents not the gospel, but the principle of evil. Leaven never represents good as used in the Bible. Leaven occurs about 98 times in the Bible, about 75 times in the Old Testament, about 23 times in the New Testament, always used in a bad sense. Although many sincere folk think of leaven as representing the gospel, which will spread over the entire world and convert the world, they are doomed to disappointment. There will be no kingdom and no peace until Christ returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. The organized church cannot bring in his kingdom. In his own good time, Christ himself will come and establish his kingdom, end quote. Well, you know, God bless J. Vernon McGee. And uh, he, you know, he's a greater man than I will ever be, but he is very wrong in this instance. Um, We read in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 17, God speaking of the wave offering 
these words, you shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Now, God isn't saying, I want you to put some evil in that bread so you can offer it to me. No, they were to be unblemished sacrifices. Not only that, you remember the table of showbread inside the holy place where they had those 12 big discs. I mean, we're talking large loaves of bread. Those were to be there first as a memorial to the Lord all day. At the end of the day, they were to be swapped out and replaced with new loaves. And then the priest would eat those loaves, the showbread. Those showbreads were leavened in the holy place. The, 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 the showbread is mentioned a lot of times in Exodus, Leviticus, Kings, and Chronicles. God never says, make sure it's unleavened. And the default was always put leaven in bread unless instructed to do otherwise. Why? Because what happens is if you don't put leaven in bread, the only thing you can really make is like, you know, matzah. You know what that is. It's like a giant saltine cracker. You, you make the dough very thin, you put it on a grill, and it's kind of like a tortilla that's been cooked until it's brittle. It's the only way you can do it. I mean, if you take a big lump of dough, a big disc, and, you know, you cook it in an oven, which would take a long time if it didn't have any leaven in it, it would just be a brick, a dough brick, and that's it. It would be inedible. So we even have the bread of the presence having leaven in it. Now, but there was something that McGee says. Now, McGee, uh, just, uh, when you read things like this, if you if you aren't kind of you know into theology and into studying things that are kind of mental food for people who like to study them, um, McGee is actually reacting against something. Did you catch what it was? He's reacting against a certain false system, and he takes his interpretation because he wants. To refute that system, it seems. He says, now let me just read this and make a comment. And listen to this. This is part of what he says. Although many sincere folk think of leaven as representing the gospel, which will spread over the entire world and convert the world, they are doomed to disappointment. I'll just stop there. Is that true? Will they be doomed to disappointment? Yes. The church will never succeed in converting the entire world to Christ. He's right. He goes on to say, there will be no kingdom, no peace until Christ returns to establish his kingdom on earth. Is this true? Yes. He's not going to, um, we won't have peace on earth until Christ returns a second time in glory to establish his kingdom. He goes on to say, the organized church cannot bring in his kingdom. Is this true? Yes. So you say, well, if he's true, then why is it wrong? Because he's also in his interpretation implied certain things that the parable has to mean one that the leaven represents the gospel. I'm not saying it does, or I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying when he says when he's what he's refuting, he's saying it has to represent that too, that the preaching the gospel will succeed in converting the entire world three, that the kingdom must first be established by the church and its evangelization efforts. And once the church has converted the entire world to Christ, then Christ will come back 
and receive the kingdom that the church has brought about through its evangelistic efforts. Now do you see the system he's trying to refute? It's called by multiple names. One is preterism. Another is post-millennialism. Another is theonomic reconstructionism. I know these are terms you probably use a lot of times. Um, Or theonomy for short. It's the false idea that the church needs to get involved in politics, get involved in media, get involved in every sphere of society of just rigorously become the intellectuals, the seminary professors, the college professors, the, the, the school teachers. We pervade society. We preach the gospel. Everybody comes to Christ and we bring about this utopian state so that Christ can come back and receive the kingdom. After the kingdom is established by the church, then Jesus will return to earth. Jesus will come post after the kingdom, the millennium is established post millennialism. Now, post millennialists have used this very text, the parable of 11 here and Luke chapter 13 to prove their point. Therefore, many coming to the passage, not wanting to give any ammunition to their theological opponents, say, okay, if they say that the leaven here is something good, if they say leaven here is the gospel and the spread of the gospel, we're taking the opposite interpretation. We're saying it's evil influence. Do you see that? But we need to be careful not to interpret passages in a reaction to other views. That's not why we interpret things. We interpret passages based on the context, and if they support a view, they support a view. But we need to be careful of reactionary interpretations. Remember, the interpretation of the text is what the original author meant for his original audience to understand. And I don't think they were thinking what post-millennialists say. We're going to the church. Again, they didn't know the church is going to totally overtake the word of the gospel And then once that happens, Jesus will come back to receive his kingdom. I mean, you have to read so many things into the text to come up with that view. There's no way anybody could have that view. William Hendrickson correctly points out, quote, nowhere is using leaven for baking bread ever spoken of as evil. I mean, leaven for bread baking is fine. That's why Jesus said, and I read it in Matthew 16, I'm not talking about be warned of leaven used for baking bread. That's fine. But figuratively speaking, beware of evil influence. And in that context, the teaching, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So when you look at our passage and you say, okay, no doubt leaven makes a good illustration of evil influence. Sometimes though, leaven means leaven. Think about that. Yeah. The near context um, always determines, determines the meaning of words, not cross-references. Cross-references are fine, but we always give most weight to the, the near context. And what is the near context? The near context, verse 17, they're all rejoicing because Jesus has just done this miracle and and demonstrate himself to be the Messiah, at least one who could do the works that they knew the Messiah would do. Some have, though, gone back just to the next couple verses where, remember, there's the man who's indignant that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus then has to confront his legalism and his hypocritical um, 
Sabbath observance, because remember, he's saying you can't do good to a person, but I'm going to do good to my animals. But Jesus refutes that in verses 15 and 16. And so if you say that that's what Jesus is referring to, then what Jesus is saying in these two parables is the refutation of incorrect, hypocritical Sabbath observance. And that is pretty desperate. So. If you believe that that the leaven represents evil, you have to skip the nearest preceding context. You have to understand these two parables as continuations of refutations of hypocritical Sabbath worship. And that just doesn't work. But there are other problems besides saying these things that that argue against the leaven being an evil influence. First, we know the kingdom of God is holy. The kingdom of God is holy. Jesus says, shall what shall I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like evil. You see a problem with that? That is a problem. Secondly, the woman in the parable purposely puts the leaven in the dough because it's a good thing. Because she doesn't want to get a dough brick. It's not like the other instances where Jesus figuratively uses leaven and talks about this surreptitious by example, slow, deceptive, corrupting influence of evil. He's not talking about that. He says the woman's got a big lump of dough. She takes leaven on purpose and kneads it into the dough because it's a good thing. So it doesn't work there either. Third, if you don't interpret the leaven as evil influence, it doesn't mean you have to interpret it as the gospel which the church must preach and conquer the entire world so that Christ can return. While all true believers in the church are kingdom saints, not all kingdom saints are part of the church. Right? Isn't it true that there will be people in the kingdom who came to Christ before the beginning of the church and after the church, after the rapture and the tribulation and even into the thousand year reign of Christ? Sure. The church is just one time period, one one portion of history where people are coming to christ but it's not the only one the scriptures also do not teach that the world is one for christ before he returns or that it has to happen as a matter of fact the scriptures teach quite the opposite if you were to look at uh, and we aren't going to go there just because of time in luke 17 verses 22 and following they're asking about jesus and what will be the sign of his coming the end of the age and uh, remember jesus is talking to them and he says it will be just the same way as it was in the days of noah what was it like in the days of noah right before the flood the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts were only evil continuously. Then he says, in case they didn't miss that one, it will be just the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. What was it like? He couldn't even find 10 righteous people in those cities. Lot and his daughters escaped. His wife almost did. And that's why he says right after that, remember Lot's wife. The whole point is, is in both Noah's day and in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was pretty much universal corruption and wickedness. And then there was divine intervention by judgment. Jesus says it's going to be just the same way. So I'm sorry if you want the world and our country to just get better and better. And Jesus return when we're all in our big houses and driving our BMWs and. It's not happening. 
It's going to proceed from bad to worse. It's going to be just the same as it was the days of Noah, just the same as it was the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't mean we're going to be economically blown apart, though it could be. Those times seem to be economically prosperous, but they were times of great saturated wickedness. So that just kind of just puts to death the whole post-millennial thought. Finally, the scriptures are clear that in the end, God does his kingdom does permeate the whole earth. Isn't that what it teaches? Is Jesus going to rule over part of the world when he comes back? I mean, think about it. Think about it. What do the scriptures say? You remember the, the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, the vision of the statue and the head of gold and the arms and chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And do you remember what kingdom takes all those kingdoms out? It's a, it's a stone that is not cut by the hands of men. In other words, it has nothing to do with the efforts of men. It is a divine overthrow of Gentile nations by God. And this is what Daniel 2.35 says. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel then interprets this dream in Daniel 2.44 and says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel makes it clear that the Gentile kingdoms are all crushed, that the kingdom of God will encompass the entire world. Zechariah tells us the same thing in Zechariah chapter 14. After it talks about the Lord goes forth to fight is when he fights in the day of battle and he conquers the nations. And then it says this in verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name will be the only one. Total world dominance, total world pervasive as the kingdom will encompass totally the whole world. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we read that the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And if you read on into Revelation 20, we see the millennium established in 21 and 22, the everlasting kingdom, the eternal state are then established. So it is true that you can believe in the total dominance of the kingdom of God over all the world, and yet believe it happens after the second coming, not before the second coming. The parable of the mustard seed and the leaven are similar, but not identical. The mustard seed emphasizes the growth of the kingdom from tiny to very large or the largest. And the parable of the leaven emphasizes complete dominance or permeation or all encompassing influence, which the kingdom will have over all the earth in the end. So once we arrive at that main point Because they're all wondering, should we side with this guy? He goes, it's like a mustard seed. We're starting out small. We're going to get really big. It's like leaven. It starts out small, but man, it's working. And it's working behind the scenes. 
and it pervades the whole lump of dough. Now, if you've been listening, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, Jack, wait a second here. There's something that I don't quite understand here. There's a little conflict in my mind because when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, that kind of happens all at once. But the permeation, the growing part doesn't seem to fit the kind of Jesus appearing in glory and putting the end the Gentiles, the kingdom. How does that work? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, you have to first remember what is a kingdom. And we've talked about this before. Three aspects of the kingdom. You remember what they are? You got to have a king. You have to have an area, a sphere of dominion, and you have to have subjects. There you go. Man, some of you guys were listening. Good. Um, that was a long time ago, too. We're going to give you stars on your forehead as you leave. Um, yeah, so that's what you have. So then you ask yourself, okay, are there, is, the, is the number of kings increasing over time? No. No, there's going to be one king, only one king. His name will be the only one in the whole earth. Okay, we got that done. Then you say, what about his sphere of dominion? Well, in one sense, in what theologians call, there is the universal reign of Christ in which he is r- ruling over all creation. But we also know there is another reign of Christ that they speak of called the mediatorial reign. And that is the reign that Christ has over earth right now, though in a universal sense, he is the king of kings and Lord of lords and ruling all creation. We also know that for this time, he has given dominance of the world to the God of this world, who is who? Satan. And he is the one who is controlling the world's evil system. Well, when Jesus comes back, he overthrows Satan's kingdom. Pitches him into the abyss, wrests his kingdom away from him, and then takes control, dominance over the world. And now he has dominion over the world. After a second coming, not before a second coming. So that leads us with one thing. What part of the kingdom over the years and centuries and millennia has constantly grown? Subjects. Whenever somebody comes to Christ, the citizenship of the kingdom of God is what? growing and you know even even when you look at at times of history when the church has been floundering like in the dark ages you know you compare that to maybe the times the apostles and the the persecution even during times the early years of persecution the church was growing and growing and growing and then just kind of floundered in the dark ages anytime somebody came to christ the kingdom was being added to the kingdom citizenship is never subtracted from It only increases and increases more and increases more. So though the visible church on earth may seem to be losing ground, anytime someone comes to Christ, the kingdom of God is growing and there will be a time when Christ comes back in his glory and all the saints with him. And when that happens, we're going to get a clue about how huge the kingdom has become. That all the saints of all the ages from, you know, Adam, you know, all the way to whoever's going to be saved in the last in the millennium. All of those people will be there with Christ and then we'll realize, man, the kingdom is gigantic. It's gigantic. So that's how we answer that question. And so what does this mean for you and me and our time today? Well, I think it means this, that when we look in the world and we see things are going good or we see things are going bad. Maybe we don't like our president. Maybe we feel like we have to be, you know, we're going to have to vote between the lesser of two evils. Or even if we get the guy we like, things don't go well and evil continues from bad to worse. And this, our country keeps falling down worse and worse and pornography and adultery and immorality. And just, I mean, just everything is just uh, decay. 
we can still have hope. Why? Because our hope is not in this world. Because Jesus' movement is growing. In the spiritual realm, like leaven in a lump of dough, it's growing and it's growing. And one day it will be revealed. And if we know Christ, if we've placed our faith in Christ as our savior, we will be with Christ in glory. You know, I can't think of, you know, any two happier people than, you know, J.D. Despain and Joan Bartholomew in heaven. I mean, they're up there like, yeah. I mean, they both love the Lord so much. I remember eight years ago when Joan had heart problems and then they made her better. She was extremely disappointed. She said, she says, I was really hoping I could just see Jesus. But then they made me better. So I guess I'm going to have to wait. <laughs> She's not waiting anymore. Let me just close with a passage that you might not have thought about. Um, it's a little section in Romans chapter eight. I'm going to read this and you think about what we learned from these parables about the growth of the kingdom behind the scenes and its sudden influence and revealing um, in this world when Christ comes back and glory. This is Romans 8 verses 18 through 25 where Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Is that great? Yes, Christ's movement may seem small at the beginning and it even may have times in the history when it seems to be insignificant. But in the end, it will be the largest of all kingdoms and it will encompass the whole world. So let that encourage you in uncertain and wicked times. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful for your mercy and your kindness. I just pray that if there's anybody here who has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, never turned from their sins and received the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus' person, his death, his burial, his resurrection, I pray that they would cry out now. Cry out now and say, I am a sinner, Lord, save me. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for me and rose again for my justification. Save me that I might be a new creature in you. And for the rest of us, Father, as we look in the world and we see evil, we see it progressing from bad to worse, may we be salt, may we be light, may we speak up, may we do our best to stem the tide of evilness. But Father, as it overcomes us and overcomes our nation, and Father, we see it pervading our society, may we not despair, for this life is not where our hope is. This world, this country, our president 
is not where our hope should be, but in Christ and his kingdom, which one day will subdue the earth. Father, we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.